Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. And he's like, I don't want to watch the game. I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, sit down, child. I shall <laughs> raise you up. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, Democrats worry that Joe Biden's reelection could be threatened by opposition or at least a lack of support from younger voters. Polls show the president hemorrhaging support from voters 30 and younger. Disapproval is especially strong over the administration's strong support for Israel and its war in Gaza. So could Biden win back some of those voters with promises of more liberal policies toward marijuana? Maybe, maybe not. But we'll explore that with a journalist who covers the cannabis industry. But first, opposition to the war in Gaza showed up in San Jose Monday, where Vice President Kamala Harris was speaking about abortion rights. KQD politics correspondent Guy Marzarati was there before and during the vice president's appearance, and he joins us now. Hey, Guy. Hey, Scott. So you got there quite early this morning. Uh, what was happening? Yeah, so I got to the Mexican Heritage Plaza a few hours before Harris was set to arrive in order to see uh, these demonstrations that were set up um, along outside of the plaza, along King Road and Alam Rock Ave uh, in support of a ceasefire in Gaza. Demonstrate. It was a really strategic, I think, uh, pick on, on where to set this up. They were just, you know, there's a very busy intersection. They got to uh, their eyeballs in front of a lot of cars. Um, and really, by the end, had kind of set up along the entrance where a lot of elected officials were making their way into the event. And so we're able to really heckle everyone who is heading in to see the vice president and the long line that formed uh, to get in to, to watch her speak on abortion rights. And the message was basically ceasefire now or was it more than that? And that was the, the call from a number of you know different groups that organized this protest. Um, and look, it, it was you know something that had started outside and ultimately continued inside about three minutes into Harris's remarks. The protest, the chant started once again. And my count four or five times during her remarks uh, were interrupted by protesters who had to be you know, ushered out. I want to ask you more about that in a second. But describe the crowd that was outside. What were the demographics? Yeah, you know, it was a pretty diverse crowd. I think, you know, what you'd expect in San Jose, the, largely the people who were coming to this event were elected officials or people who work in some broad way around reproductive rights or maybe their work touches on maternal health. Um, I talked to a woman who ran a, a center working to prevent domestic violence against black women. Um, I talked to Vanessa Grijalva. She was a board member for Latina Coalition of Silicon Valley. She's also an affiliate of Planned Parenthood. And, you know, she talked to me about, you know, why she came out and why she really feels like Harris is the best Democratic messenger on this issue of reproductive rights. She's a woman specifically who can 
who can speak to this and we've had so many men speak on women's health and our bodies and things like that so I think it's just important for her to come out here and it is so important for us people of color to come out and to, to rock the vote this year especially and then for her doing this in our community um, it just highlights the importance of that. And Scott, I mentioned that long line of people waiting to get through the Secret Service to see Harris. Grijalva was in that line. It was kind of a reporter's dream. You had everyone just kind of lined <laughs> up there waiting to be interviewed. But there were dozens of people who didn't even make it into the event. It eventually hit a 500-person capacity, and you had dozens of people kind of waiting outside the plaza who never got a chance to come in and see the vice president. So Harris was there for that abortion forum. Tell us about the interview and who else was there, who else spoke. Yeah, she was on stage with actress and activist Sophia Bush, who, you know, I, I don't know if I would call it an interview. She's basically there to kind of guide Harris through her stump speech on this issue. But yeah, about three minutes in, this uh, you know protest began calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. This was after, you know, uh, Javier Becerra, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, former Attorney General, had spoken. Um, and the protest started really, you know, within minutes of Harris taking the stage. And I turned to my right and I saw one woman who was yelling at Harris and who was then escorted out. And I thought, wow, I recognize this person. Turns out I had interviewed her <laughs> like, you know, hours before outside of the venue. Her name was Allie Felker. She was actually invited to the event because of the work that she'd done, the advocacy around prenatal health, specifically in reducing stillbirths. But she had told me, despite being aligned with Harris on those kind of issues, she sees the risk to pregnant women in Gaza right now who are, you know, facing bombardment and more as being something she felt like she needed to speak out about. I can't come here and advocate for reproductive justice without also standing with Palestine, standing with the women and children of Gaza and saying that the reproductive justice that we're seeking in this country needs to also be equated with what's happening in Gaza. That was certainly a tie that many of the demonstrators were trying to make outside the event. And clearly that, you know, resonated for some people who were inside. So Harris has been facing some protests, as has President Biden, on the Israel-Hamas war. How did the vice president respond? At first, she acknowledged the protest. She said, you know, she's working with the president to try to bring an end to the conflict. A similar response that you heard from Joe Biden when he was, uh, you know, faced similar demonstrations at a recent event. Um after that, Harris largely started to either, you know, just kind of try to wait out the chants or in some cases kind of talk over them. She also had a lot of support in the room. So people were chanting MVP, I think Madam Vice President in this case, <laughs> um, and four more years. So she kind of had the crowd on her side. But look, I think this just kind of you know, raises, uh, you know, an issue for Democrats going forward that you have this divide amongst the base on these two issues. And Guy, you know, we've seen Kamala Harris. We've been covering her, you and Marisa Lagos and I, for many, many years. Uh, I remember her being the DA and then the senator and attorney general, now vice president. And I'm wondering, like, how did she do up there? Because she's gotten a lot of criticism over the years about not being particularly effective of a communicator. Now, this was a very friendly audience with the exception of the protesters. Um, but what was your sense? Does she seem, you know, more confident, more, uh, you know, willing to go off script? Well, let me break this down first into the kind of expected uh, event here. I thought, you know, from the prepared remarks that she had, Harris was sharp. And I think she's at her best when she's kind of, quote unquote, prosecuting the case. In this case, laying out the threats that she argues could come to abortion rights if Republicans are able to gain more power, gain the White House, gain more power in Washington. I thought she was really effective on that. Then there's the, you know, the stuff she didn't prepare for, the protests uh, that popped up. And I think there you just see this kind of sinking realization that this war is going to follow her 
and follow the president as they try to pivot to these other issues that are more friendly terrain for them uh, in the electorate. What's interesting to me is many of the same voters, the young voters that Harris, I think, is speaking to when she talks about abortion rights and needs to get out to the polls in November, are the same group of folks who are the most upset about how the administration is handling this war in Gaza. So you have this group of voters that they're not only cross-position, they they feel differently on these two things, they're kind of cross-pressure. They care a lot about both of these issues, reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, and also this ongoing war in Gaza. Kind of like that young woman, Allie, that you talked to earlier. Exactly. Like she was, you know, invited to the event, showed up given the work that she'd done around prenatal health, but felt like it wasn't enough to just kind of sit in the audience and applaud. She wanted to be part of this demonstration. All right. KQD politics correspondent Guy Marzarati. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to talk about the politics of pot. Could a shift in policy from the Biden administration help the president with younger voters? You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And as we just heard from Guy Marzarati, the Biden-Harris administration is facing some big obstacles on its way to re-election in November, including anger over what some feel has been a blank check for Israel in its war in Gaza. And nowhere is that a bigger problem than with younger voters under the age of 30. They went for Biden big time in 2020 over Donald Trump, but that support has been eroded badly over disappointment on some of the compromises he's made on climate change, in addition to that anger over his strong and unwavering support for Israel. And, you know, for these voters, Biden simply saying Trump is a threat to democracy and we've got to prevent him from getting back into the White House won't be enough. One thing that could improve the president's approval rating with younger voters is bold moves toward decriminalizing the use of marijuana. And joining us now to get into the weeds of cannabis politics is David Downs. He's a senior editor and reporter with Leafly.com, an online publication that covers marijuana policy. Hello, David. Hi, Scott. Um, let me begin with this theory uh, that, uh, you know, I guess it's backed up with some polling, that a shift in federal policy toward marijuana, making it more liberal, could, in fact, uh, attract some younger voters. What's the, what's the theory here? Yeah, the idea is if you do things that people are, uh, want you to do, they might vote for you more. And uh, I know it's like radical, 
But um, most people think it's long overdue for the federal government to move forward on cannabis policy reform, legalization, or moving cannabis down from the Schedule One spot it is as the most dangerous drug out there next to heroin to something um, more reasonable. And the Gallup polls have shown that support for legalization is at a, quote, record high in the United States. That's at 70 percent. Support for medical marijuana polls in the 90s. I don't know if clean air or clean water polls in the 90s. So ostensibly, if you make policy policy moves or legislative moves to advance that popular agenda, you're going to pick up some votes. And is there a difference between decriminalizing and legalizing in any of this, or is that just too uh, too detailed at this point? Oh, there's tons of gradations, uh, for sure. And they poll at different uh, levels. Uh, people that are broadly in favor of legalization, it might hit 70% in Gallup. When you explain that uh, there might be federal legalization and it might apply to your state, that might go down a little bit. We've entered into this phase of not if legalization, but when and how it's going to look. So just to clarify, here in California, marijuana recreational use is already legal, as it is in many states, like half the states. Is there the thinking then that in those states, it's not really going to help him so much? Uh, it could. I mean, we have 24 legalization states and 38 medical marijuana states. Ohio begins legalization this year. New York's is just starting to ramp. And then there's a number of states where cannabis is going to be on the ballot, uh, especially swing states uh, that could really help. Like which ones? Specifically, uh, we're watching Florida. We're also watching Pennsylvania. And then um, further down the ballot, there's if we wanted to get in the weeds, we could talk about local efforts in Wisconsin or Texas. Okay. I don't know who else thinks of Florida as a swing state, but we'll let that go for now. Um, Wisconsin is a swing state for sure, perhaps the most evenly divided in the country. So do they even have statewide ballot measures? Could something like that go on the ballot there? They don't. Uh, Wisconsin's for marijuana should and could do local referendums. And the legislature is starting to debate it as well. These local referendums, uh, which like started in Oakland with Prop uh, Measure Z, which makes marijuana enforcement the lowest enforcement priority, these can be like plebiscites and draw, draw out voters at the local level. And they really percolate up to the state level for change. You mentioned the DEA uh, moving marijuana from Schedule 1, which is where heroin is, down to Schedule 3. And it was recently revealed that HHS, the uh, Health and Human Services Agency, actually recommended that to the DEA. Um, how does what's what would be the you know the mechanism for that? Is that does Biden have anything to do with that? Biden is behind the scene. He's the boss of both the HHS and the DOJ, of which the Drug Enforcement Administration is underneath. And the Health and Human Services Agency coming out and saying that marijuana shouldn't be Schedule 1 is a big freaking deal. It would be the first time in 60 years we're seeing it as medical use and a low potential for abuse compared to other substances. Now they've kicked that over to the DEA. And the scuttlebutt is, is that maybe by the end of the summer, the DEA will come out with a matching recommendation to go to Schedule 3. And that would kick off a, a round of public comment, which would take it through the election. But President Biden could campaign on promises kept. And in fact, he was in South Dakota this week campaigning on promises kept with regard to marijuana expungements and uh, and those kind of things. South Dakota or South Carolina? Uh, you should check. Yeah, I think it was South Carolina. In any case, um, so the thing that uh, you know a lot of young people are upset about, as I said at the beginning, um, is not marijuana. It's about climate change. It's especially about the war in Israel with Hamas. So are you, is there a suggestion here that sh this will, you know, get them to forget about that or it'll, it'll be less important to them or like, what's the deal there? Ostensibly, yeah, it should um, flip over some younger voters. For example, in Florida, among 18 to 24-year-olds, 86% support legalization. And so if that's on the ballot and it's turning out voters, uh, those are otherwise younger Floridians that might stay home that might not have a salient issue, although abortion might be there too. 
And, you know, Biden has taken some steps already in this direction. He uh, has issued some pardons. Tell us about that. Yeah, those pardons are starting to hit X in terms of actual uh, photos of people getting their pardon. So if you got a pot ticket uh, on federal property like the Presidio and caught like a federal case, you, you should expect like a signed letter from President Biden in the mail. And, you know, with the... the are, are, you, are you serious? Uh, straight up. Yeah. And uh, like the uh, stamped, embossed gold seal, the whole thing, like President Biden's signature on it. You're going to print that out at a coffee shop, frame it, put it on your wall. It's going to be a lifetime sort of object for you. Those are going out right now. All right. And then um, there is some other suggestions that perhaps he could do some other things about, let's say, overly long, uh, disproportionate prison sentences. Has he, has he done anything in that regard? He said that no one should be in jail for personal possession of pot. That's been percolating down. Uh, well, one of the bigger things that'll make a move is if rescheduling happened, there is a poll that's saying that Biden gets plus 11 out of rescheduling right now. And, uh, you know, plus 11 nationally doesn't translate into plus 11 in Florida, where, where Trump has a plus 11 advantage, but it's definitely in a tailwind. And if you're talking about saving democracy, you want to bring all the ammo to bear on that topic. It's an easy one to, to go for. Is, is he the right messenger? In addition, given his sort of history on these issues. He was very tough on drugs, like in the 1990s. Yep. Yep. Um, I do think he is. He's trying to win the middle. He's trying to win independents, undecideds. They skew a little older. They don't want to be freaked out by, quote unquote, pot shops on every corner. He's a credible interlocutor. When he says as the ballast of the country that it's time to move forward, he does so in a credible way that is going to be measured. He's not getting out in front of the HHS like um, another president might. He's letting the process take care of itself and and letting America percolate up this change. Yeah. So in what you said, we said earlier, uh, this whole idea that it could take go through the summer and maybe even through the election. So it's really more so, hey, look what I'm trying to do, kind of just sort of sending that message as opposed to the change actually happening in 2024. Yeah, that's the top down thing happening. At the same time, there's a bunch of bottom up stuff happening in the state and they can meet in the middle to pinch Mr. Trump. And uh, I'm wondering, is there still Republican and sort of libertarian support for this kind of thing? Because there used to be. There's, yeah, I mean, think uh, for, for, um, 55% of double haters, that is people who hate Biden and Trump, like legalization. And then in Florida, um, legalization's polling with 55% of Republicans and 51% of 65 and up. So uh, there's a like there's no group for which it's not um, a pro-legalization at this point. It's just the magnitude of their desire for it and thus the likelihood that they'll turn out to support it at the ballot box. I want to talk to you about what's happening here in California more broadly, because uh, as a, you know, California has led the way in, in some ways, and Governor Newsom has led the way on liberalizing our policies. Um, where do things stand? Because it seems like the legal weed industry is struggling here. Yeah, um, we are in a Prohibition 2.0 environment in California. We've ostensibly legalized it. No one's going to jail anymore for it. Uh, you used to go put 100,000 people in handcuffs for marijuana in the 70s. That's around 2,000 now, and you'd have to traffic some serious weight to uh, get on the radar of authorities now in California. And we are bringing in a billion dollars in annual tax revenue from cannabis, so much so that the governor is dipping into it to backfill some of his budget and promising us you know, hey, we'll get you down the road. But at the same time, um, the operators are struggling under federal taxation that under the 
under an obscure section of the tax code that makes their businesses unprofitable. And then state and local taxation is also combined to really pinch them. For example, your excise tax, which is at 15% on anything you buy from the store at the state level, that might go to 19% in the near future. And here in San Francisco County, um, locals passed uh, decided not to enact a local gross receipts tax that might be one, two, three percent of gross receipts at the store. And uh, that's really onerous because one or two or three percent of your gross receipts might be your margin, your profit margin in a functioning economy. Um, so we're continuing to see the industry ask for taxes to come down, for regulations to get more reasonable. And frankly, um, Sacramento is starting to meet them on that. And in that environment, the black market, uh, including drugs imported from Mexico, presumably, is still thriving, right? We don't see marijuana coming into California like we used to. What we do continue to have is marijuana being exported out of California. We're the number one domestic source state for marijuana for the country. That's a flip, isn't it? Uh, yep. Yeah, that that those drug flows have switched. Our OG Kush is going to Mexico now. They're they're trying to plant that down there. And again. Um, there's a lot of demand for marijuana across the country, especially in illegalization states or, or prohibition states in the Midwest and the South. Californians are happy to oblige. But one other factor is that production of legal and illegal cannabis has gotten so high that the cost of cannabis has cratered from highs of $3,000 a pound in the 90s to lower than $400 a pound, $300 a pound these days. That has been a strong disincentive to plant. And so uh, we appear to be at the bottom swing of, of a low amount of farmers at this point. One of the reasons pot dispensaries or pot stores are struggling in California is that they're not allowed to sell food. They're not allowed to have you know any live music. Um, and Governor Newsom recently vetoed a bill by Assemblyman Matt Haney that would have allowed that. And the argument he used in his veto message was it would interfere with the smoke-free environment for workers. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, how do you see that veto? Because that seemed like in some ways a slam dunk for, from a governor who supported the legalization. My understanding is that was a trade-off with public health officials who wanted some other things. They didn't get what they wanted, but the pot industry didn't get what they wanted with regard to this sort of violation of a smoke-free paradigm in California. But it is an example of how in a licensed cannabis lounge, of which San Francisco has a dozen, you can't make a grilled seeds cheese sandwich or, and, and have a, like a guitarist play in the corner just yet. And we're in California where the future happens first. Uh, we're supposed to have a wide variety of freedoms here, but we're still struggling to move the ball forward um, with regard to this policy. And the, the, this cannabis lounge idea, that's something that was passed in anticipation in San Francisco. I know West Hollywood, and I think maybe Palm Springs also has a similar law on the books, in waiting for that state you know, permission to have music and food? It was more like the state said, hey, if cities want to license lounges, go for it. Um, but no music and no prepared food in there. And so um, San Francisco and West Hollywood have become a global hotbed of cannabis consumption lounge experiences. They're really high end. You can get a steak uh, served to you at a West Hollywood lounge from across, but they're bringing it in from across the street from a, uh, a vendor. And um, we're, ex we're seeing lounges open up in Vegas this year and other states want to do them too. Any unintended consequences? Uh, you know, we talked about the high taxation rate and how, that, how that's really uh, forced, you know, hard times for a lot of cannabis dispensaries and stores here in California. I mean, has there been, I mean, the big concern, of course, was, you know, uh, minors using it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, generally, minors are using less cannabis under legalization regimes than under prohibition regimes. 
probably because the price of pot is so low, it's not as profitable to be a high school drug dealer. Um, we're also seeing rates of mental health issues or other issues stay stable. Um, that, that's why the HHS just came out and recommended rescheduling. If we were getting red flags on the public health front, um, Health and Human Services wouldn't say take it to Schedule 3. I think the most unintended consequence was the decimation uh, of small and minority business operators that were in the medical marijuana space in the tra transition to adult use. Frankly, the state and local officials didn't do enough to make a pathway for them, and they've gone all but extinct. Last question, David. Other than what we've talked about President Biden and the federal government doing, what else is on the horizon? What are you looking for in 2024? Um, I mean, I would love to see local decriminalization plebiscites. We're going to see those in Texas. So Texas is plus 10 Trump. Texas. Texas. And it's a huge state, but it's got a lot of cannabis users. Lord knows Leafly gets a lot of viewers from there. They're in places like Austin and such. And Texas is at the point that California was at, I guess, in the early 90s, where local cities and counties can uh, move forward with decriminalization. And if enough of them do that, it'll percolate up to state change. All right. That is David Downs. He's a senior editor and reporter with Leafly.com. David, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>